In September of 2017, Hurricane Irma was the first Category 5 storm to hit the Leeward Islands in recorded history. Small geography lesson, the Leeward Islands are a group of islands on the northeast side of the Caribbean on the west side of the Atlantic Ocean. A few of those islands include Antigua, St. Kitts, St. Martin, and the Virgin Islands. The storm formed from a tropical wave on August 30th. It became a Category 5 hurricane on September 5th and made landfall in Florida on September 10th. After raking up the west side of the state, the storm dissipated somewhere over Alabama and Missouri around September 14th, 2017, the day that Krista Hall was found murdered in her bed. A little more on the storm from Wikipedia, quote, The ninth named storm, fourth hurricane, second major hurricane, and first Category 5 hurricane of the 2017 season, Irma caused widespread and catastrophic damage throughout its long lifetime, particularly in the Northeast Caribbean and the Florida Keys. It was also the most intense hurricane to strike the continental United States since Katrina in 2005, the first major hurricane to make landfall in Florida since Wilma in the same year, and the first Category 4 hurricane to strike the state since Charlie in 2004. The word Ermageddon was coined soon after the hurricane to describe the damage caused by the hurricane. End quote. This is Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Laura Saremi. This is Season 3, Episode 1, The Conspiracy to Convict Tommy Hall. This podcast does include adult content, so please use caution. In this eight-page arrest affidavit, investigators said 29-year-old Krista was found with extensive trauma to her head and face. With no immediate suspect, they sought the public's help and waited on lab results from the crime scene. Investigators eventually learned DNA left on bits of plastic around the victim's body linked Tommy Hall to this murder. Yes, it was six months ago, but as you can see, um, we do work our cases all the same. And once we collect all the evidence or once we get the results back, we do investigate the case thoroughly. At that time, the victim's husband told deputies he and his wife were living apart and he hadn't been to her home in days. But investigators noted his cell phone put him at Krista's home the morning she died. The sheriff's office hopes this arrest encourages other victims' families to not lose hope. Our detectives are working digitally around the clock to make sure that we bring closure to them as well. That makes this sound like an open and shut case, right? There's DNA, there's cell phone records. Problem solved. When a woman is murdered, it's always the husband, right? The National Resource Center on Domestic Violence says that nearly one out of five murder victims were killed by an intimate partner. In fact, available research shows that women are more likely to be killed by an intimate partner, a husband, boyfriend, same-sex partner, or ex than by anyone else. Approximately two out of five female murder victims are killed by an intimate partner. So when someone is killed, the first thing they do is look at the people close to them because they're more likely to be murdered by someone they know. But let's go back. If two out of five female murder victims were killed by an intimate partner, that means that three out of five weren't. Lots of crime shows like to joke about it's always the spouse, it's always the partner. What happens when there's lots of partners to make suspects out of? Um, I met Tommy back in 2008 through a job that I had. Uh, 
we've been really good friends ever since. He told me that they basically had kind of an open relationship where they both saw other people while they were together. Do you know anything about that? Uh, yeah, I know, I know that both of them were doing it. All throughout our marriage, we've been seeing other people. We had an open marriage from day one because my wife was very promiscuous. I knew this coming into the marriage. I kind of liked it because she liked women too. You see what I'm saying? So when I asked them to to present this to the jury, they told me, oh, the jury wouldn't understand what open marriage is. Because their narrative when they first started my trial, Ms. Lord, was, we're going to show you the jealous husband. The jealous husband. And I sat there and I'm like, the jealous husband? Yeah, he was jealous, jealous of her getting a new boyfriend and moving on. And, and this this is what this case is all about. This is your case in chief. Because I, I, I know this stuff now. This is your case. This is what you're building your case around. Okay. My thing was to them, how am I jealous of somebody that I already knew? I already knew about this guy. And he wasn't even the main guy. I knew about several other men. By name. By face. And this was way... This was seven months before anything even happened to her. So where, where does the jealousy come in at? There was a recent article in The New Yorker by Andrew Solomon called How Polyamorous and Polygamists Are Challenging Family Norms. I would like to read a little bit from that article. Quote, the Oxford English Dictionary and Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary added the word polyamory as recently as 2006, and the well-known relationship therapist Esther Perel observes that traditional monogamy is on the wane and perhaps increasingly untenable. Many social norms don't fit human nature, she told me. For most of history, monogamy was one person for life. At this point, monogamy is one person at a time. The first freedom was that we can actually finally have sex with other people before we are together. Now we want to have that freedom while we are together. The conversation about consensual non-monogamy today is the conversation about virginity 60 years ago, or the conversation about divorce 20 years before that. The campaigns of both polygamists and polyamorous to have their unions recognized point to the larger questions that swarm around marriage battles. What are the government's interests in marriage and family? And why does a bureaucratic system sustain such a relentless focus on who has sexual relationships with whom? Surveys in the past decade have consistently found that 4 to 5% of American adults, more than 10 million people, already practice some form of consensual non-monogamy, and the true number, given people's reticence about stigmatized behaviors, is almost certainly higher." End quote. This case relied very heavily on some particularly interesting evidence. Part of that evidence was DNA found at the crime scene. DNA is the gold standard, right? I mean, if we found your DNA, we, we got you. Or do we? So let's talk about the Innocence Project for a moment. This is a group dedicated to exonerating wrongful convictions. To date, they have exonerated 375 cases by DNA. The way they did this was they excluded the person that had been convicted because their DNA wasn't there. 
makes sense, right? If the perpetrator's DNA, blood, other bodily fluids are all over the crime scene and it's not the person you have in prison, then chances are they didn't do it. But what does it mean if your DNA is found at the crime scene? Does that mean that you did do it? Now, we're going to talk about that and we're going to get into DNA so much, but I'm going to hold that particular question and answer for a, a future episode. But let's back up a little bit. What if the DNA test itself is unreliable? What if DNA being the gold standard doesn't really apply if the test you did wasn't accurate? So before we even talk about that, let's look at crime labs. And I'm just going to start with a few headlines. As early as uh, two years ago, uh, we had learned that there was a case in which uh, the technicians' DNA, the people who who were doing the testing, their DNA was found mixed with the sample of a suspect. And that's just one example. And good day to you, John, from inside the Justice Department, where we've now gotten the FBI crime lab report that's been the discussion of so much uh, in the news over the past several months, a year and a half in the making, and it concludes that FBI agents were sloppy, didn't have enough training, and fudged their testimony a little bit in some cases in the past. Here's some background on what spawned this project focused on the APD DNA evidence lab. A 2016 audit found lab technicians there were using flawed science when calculating the odds of DNA results, possibly botching thousands of cases. Techs were also using expired materials during testing, and there was at least one case where evidence was contaminated. Over the course of her time in that office, she has potentially tampered with up to 40,000 different cases evidence. This week, the drug lab scandal is in the news in a big way. Because of a scandal in a state crime lab, this is an incredible story. Hundreds of convictions have been thrown out because evidence was probably tainted. Tell, but we know hundreds of cases, including some right here in our area, could be compromised. I had promised myself I was going to stop with those clips, but I just can't. Here's a few more headlines. Deep-seated problems at D.C.'s crime lab, 6,000 cases linked to rogue chemist, Florida drug crime lab scandal, more aftermath from the Houston crime lab scandal, FBI whistleblower exposes FBI crime lab scandal, crime lab scandal affects 34,000 cases, DA looking into third chemist at state crime lab, Austin's unreliable crime lab could lead to another wrongful execution, San Francisco lab scandal, Crime lab in New York under the microscope after a string of shoddy, suspect, and fraudulent results. This is a nationwide epidemic, and there's a bunch of reasons why state crime labs are a problem, the least of which is that in multiple states, including Florida, where this season's case occurs, crime labs only get paid if the result of the testing results in a conviction. Let me repeat that just in case you missed it. If I'm working at a crime lab and I have a sample sent to me by the police department for a case and I come back that it's not what they think it is or it's not who they think it is, we at the lab don't get paid. What do you think my incentive is to make sure it matches? That very premise can only create bias and taint the whole process. It's insane. The fact that it's not more publicly known 
is crazy. And I can tell you why, because I went through the actual statutes and it's hidden in language like the trust that pays for the testing. And then it talks about judgments that the judge gives after the fact. And it essentially charges the defendant with fees for the testing, which are then sent to the labs after the fact, which means they only get paid when there's a conviction and only if there's a conviction. It's nuts. I'm going to read a paragraph from an article by Jordan Michael Smith called Forget CSI, A Disaster is Happening in America's Crime Labs. Quote, In many jurisdictions, crime labs receive money for each conviction they contribute to, according to a study in the journal Criminal Justice Ethics. Statues in Florida and North Carolina mandate that judges provide labs with remuneration upon conviction and only upon conviction. Alabama, Arizona, California, Missouri, Wisconsin, Tennessee, New Mexico, Kentucky, New Jersey, and Virginia are among the states with similar provisions. With remuneration provided exclusively for guilty verdicts and pleas, labs have a financial interest in producing results that implicate suspects. Quote, Police prosecutors and forensic scientists often have an incentive to garner convictions with little incentive to convict the right person. End quote. The article's authors, criminologists Roger Koppel and Megan Sachs wrote. End quote. I did a fantastic interview with criminal defense attorney Lee Fairchild, and I'm going to use some clips from that interview here. We will get more into that interview in a later episode, but I do want to let you hear a little bit from her about her viewpoint on some of the crime lab issues in Florida. I need so much more corroborative evidence to want to believe it because there's just such a human error into the highest trial court level. And to me, if it's the highest trial court level, we shouldn't be having human error. There should be more objective evidence. And the argument they always give you is, oh, well, we were convicting people before there was video cameras and we were convicting people before there was iPhones. And all I say to that is, just because you did it before doesn't mean because we have new technology, we should still be ingrained in these archaic ways of trying cases and taking away people's rights. And I will say that the advent of DNA technology, we do a lot of DNA testing, but it's got a lot of issues in itself, too, um, with especially trying to get around jurors' minds that it it is a fallible process the way the state of Florida does it at at minimum, um, when there's just so many better ways to do it. So I was just reading an article. uh, Okay, so small preview, my season three case involves some really interesting DNA evidence, if we're going to call it that. And I was, I was, oh, yeah. And I was reading an article about the Broward County, Florida crime lab scandal, where the expert came in and was asked to verify a DNA evidence uh, conclusion to prove that it was right and she came in and said not only is it not right it's completely wrong and all of this stuff you've been doing on these like 2,000 cases is wrong and so were you um, I mean you were practicing in Florida when all that happened yeah I I remember it like vaguely um, happening I I mean I'm not surprised there's like so much weird stuff going on in the DNA labs in Florida, we send everything to FDLE, or at least where I have practiced. And so that's the lab that does it. It's the Florida Department of Law Enforcement lab. What I found in my first DNA case, what I was like horrified with was like 
how very little education the majority of these people have. I have a biology degree and they have a biology degree and that's it. And they just started working at the lab and you do a little bit of intern kind of stuff and like they do what's called like these certifications and whatnot, but most of them don't have masters. Some of them do, but for the most part, this is kind of what it is. Um, you don't make a ton of money, so I'm not really surprised that these people don't have a ton of training to be testing DNA in a lab in a nine to five kind of setting. So that's been my experience is that these people are super well trained and pretty much overworked. And again, there's a huge subjective issue. And the first DNA cross I did, I was honestly shocked because I mean, I've got, I'll send you, I've got a 50 page DNA cross so you can read it or 64 pages I had transcribed after we won this case. And basically you go through like, what is DNA? And I'll, I'll, spare you all the fun stuff where you're trying to teach the jury on cross because you don't have your own expert basically dna analysis and why it's wrong but basically i asked her and i was like okay so when you're doing this sample do you know who the suspect is and do you know anything about the case and she's like oh yeah i already know who the suspect is i put his thing i put his dna next to the perpetrator's dna and and then i look i look to see if there's matches in the peak height from the mass spec. And I'm like, so you're literally making a decision. And so I pulled up the the actual diagrams of the mass spec and everything. And I showed them uh, to her and I was like, well, the peak here is far smaller than the peak there. Why did you say that that was a match versus noise, which is just where there's a peak, but there isn't an actual um, like loci match or an allele. So she was like, oh yeah, no, I, I have to make that determination. And I'm like, well, is there a level? Is there a one millimeter, a half a millimeter? Like, what's the level where you're like, that's a peak, that's noise. And she's like, oh yeah, I just, I make the determination. And I was like, well, how do you know if you're right? And she's like, wait, I'm, I just know. And I was horrified because you're literally looking at the suspect while you're looking at the perpetrator. And if you think that that's not gonna make a difference, when those wave heights are com different, but there's arguably a peak, that's that's horrifying to me. And she went on and I, for argument's sake, I went through everything with her, polymorphism, and I, I mean, it's a lot. But, and it, there's 64 pages I'll send you, but we went through all of it and everything that they did and where they saw differences and what the decisions that they made. And in the end of the day, every decision that they made on the DNA was very subjective. And one of the things that I think jurors don't get that makes a huge difference is DNA, like if we take a DNA sample from me and a DNA sample from you and we test it, we're giving the people in the lab an unlimited amount of DNA to test. You know what I mean? Like that's a large sample. But when you're taking a perpetrator's DNA and a suspect's DNA sample, so the suspect has gives you more because it's a swab, but the perpetrator's DNA is left on items items in the house it couldn't even be a full dna sample and i was like well what do you do with that and she's like we just look at the pieces that we have and i'm like so what do you fill in the space if the, it's not a complete sample where do you write that where are those bench notes and that's that's the subjective part that just drives me up a wall um because you don't have an unlimited sample of dna and then on top of that there's all kinds of other issues because there's not just noise there's all these other words that basically mean not peaks but that you're supposed to be able to discern which is which subjectively while looking at the suspect and the perpetrator's DNA. But I like, I asked her specifically, I go, well, isn't there three types of DNA transfer? 
And she's like, yes. And I was like, there's primary, right? Where I touch the weapon, right? And then you just, we get it from the next thing. And then she's like, yeah. I was like, well, what if I, I touch you? Oh yeah, your DNA would be on my hand. And then if I touch you and then you touch something else? And they're like, yeah. And then your DNA could be on the third item? And I'm like, so how do you rule that out? And she's like, oh, we can't. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, cool. So you can't rule that out. And you only have a partial, you know, copy of the DNA or whatever you were able to get from the perpetrator, right? And these people, and in sex cases, these people might be living together. So the DNAs are just, you're just shedding DNA everywhere you go, right? And she's like, I was like, how do you tell that it's from this date of this incident? She's like, oh, no, I can't. <laughs> and I was just horrified. And that's basically 64 pages of this lovely cross was what is happening. Um, and that's one of the biggest issues that you have is DNA is really quite fallible in the way that we do it in the system in Florida, at least, and our lab system because of the subjective nature and the fact that we don't rule any of this out. And then what kills me is like, you would go, well, that's Brady evidence. They should come in and say that. They don't. They come in and they come in and say, oh, DNA is infallible. You know, DNA evidence. We have DNA evidence. It's a match. It had to happen. And then they do this for 25, 30 minutes. And then into, if your defense attorney doesn't do a good cross, the jury thinks it's infallible. So if I don't get up there and poke all these holes in the problems and talk about all the subjective things, they're never going to tell them that. They're never going to tell them they look at the suspect's DNA at the same time. Why would they? In a criminal case, the prosecution must prove the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Judges explain reasonable doubt in a variety of ways. But a common instruction is that proof of such a convincing character that a reasonable person would not hesitate to act upon it in the most important of his own affairs. Reasonable doubt, burden of proof. Unfortunately, as someone who looks into wrongful convictions, I see this entire process break down in so many ways. I do not know who killed Krista Hall. But the evidence in the trial of Tommy Hall is very suspect, and we will be getting into all of it. From DNA to blood spatter, hurricanes to herpes outbreaks, an open marriage to a violent murder, season three will undoubtedly be a wild ride. Don't forget to subscribe and watch soon for the next episode of Aggravating Circumstances Season 3, The Conspiracy to Convict Tommy Hall. Did you know there's an association between natural disasters and interpersonal violence? Strong enough that police departments can predict how many more assaults they should see on their crime blotters in the days after a big event. On Friday the 8th, Irma becomes the first Category 5 storm to hit Cuba in almost a century. We're bored enough for the hurricane so we can have something to come back to. If and when Irma hits the mainland United States as a Category 4 or 5, it will be the first time in recorded history that we have had two landfalls of Category 4 or 5 storms in the same year. So that's unusual. It's, it's unprecedented. 
Six months after a young child found her mother dead in their home, Orange County deputies have made an arrest. The murder happened in Pine Hills just days after Hurricane Hermit hit. Six months after her murder inside this home, the haven Krista Hall once shared with her three children sits empty and quiet. And her 39-year-old estranged husband, Tommy Andrew Hall, is behind bars, charged with first-degree murder. My aunt and my sister sat in my trial, and they knew it was smoke being blown everywhere. And the lies that were being created you know, it was crazy because it's like they would say one thing in my trial and then turn around and say something else that just went all totally off the rack against what they just said. That's And I was like, did you really just catch that? And I was like, yeah, I was catching that stuff. And I was like, yeah, that was the smoke. You know what I'm saying? And, and it didn't make sense. It was just basically trying to leave the jury on a narrative that they were trying to sell which really was not hard to sell because once you go in there and you say yeah we got this guy this guy was arguing and he was in all kind of arguments with his with his wife separating from her and now she's dead what, what more do you have to say to somebody all throughout our marriage, we've been seeing other people. We had an open marriage from day one. When I asked them to to present this to the jury, they told me, oh, the jury wouldn't understand what open marriage is. He told me that they basically had kind of an open relationship where they both saw other people while they were together. Do you know anything about that? Uh, Yeah, I know. I know that both of them were doing it. They don't admit lie detector exams. They gave me a lie detector exam four times that I've never been in trouble in my life. So I didn't even know anything about the law about that not being admissible. I just wanted to be cooperative. So I went down there, took the lie detector test. I came up non-deceptive. Four times they gave me this, this test. So did you think he did it when you first heard? No. 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 You saying to me that I was able to beat somebody to death within seven minutes, clean up, and make it to my job on time, and go on about my day. Within seven minutes? Who am I, Jason Bourne? 